from coast to coast to coast. You're listening to Terra Informa. Hello, and welcome to Terra Informa. I'm Hannah Cunningham. And I'm Dylan Paul. And we'll be your hosts for the next half hour of environmental news from across Canada and around the world. This week, we're excited to air an interview done by one of our fellow CGSR stars. Nigel Henry Robinson, host of the CGSR show Chimuin, spoke with the English Bay grandmothers about their work fighting against oil extraction and development on the Cold Lake First Nations. Then, inspired by the low-hanging, smoky skies blocking out the stars across the western provinces, we're bringing back an archive about light pollution. But first, here are this week's environmental news headlines. Approximately 50 people gathered at the Kinder Morgan West Ridge Marine Terminal in Burnaby, BC on Tuesday, August 14th to protest the proposed expansion of the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Four of the protesters were arrested. Later that day, more defenders gathered at the Supreme Court of British Columbia to support a 17-year-old whose name has been banned from publication and who is facing sentencing for passing the injunction line at a Trans Mountain Pipeline site. The defenders supporting the youth were concerned that the minor will not be treated fairly by the Supreme Court justice presiding over this case, as Justice Kenneth Affleck, nicknamed Judge Pipeline by some protesters, has been accused of being notoriously influenced by oil lobbies. On the same day that these pipeline protests took place, a tugboat owned by Leadcor that was carrying as much as 22,000 litres of diesel fuel capsized and spilled its contents in the Fraser River. The Western Canada Marine Response Corporation and Coast Guards placed booms and absorbent pads around the tugboat. It is not yet known what the impact will be on the surrounding ecosystem. The Musqueam First Nation stated that the fuel spill was of, quote, great concern, end quote, to its people who fish salmon in the Fraser River. The Musqueam First Nation deployed staff to monitor the cleanup, but are frustrated by the lack of monetary support from the federal government. If you would like any more information on any of the headlines we've read, you can check out our website where we have links to news articles representing these stories at terrainforma.ca. And now for a story from our fellow CGSR volunteer, Nigel Henry Robinson, and fellow show, Pichamuin. Can you guys give us some background on, to, on this project and uh, the stance of the group? Uh, in the around 2007, 8, 9, around there, um, a proposal was brought to Cold Lake First Nation for uh, oil extraction on 149B, which is uh, English Bay. Through community uh, internal consultation, uh, unanimously, 100%, think it was four meetings, we denied we denied the company's access onto our land for resource access, and uh, three different companies. I don't know the the corporate names of them now, but it wasn't uh, Petro Frontier. They're, they're, you know, the corporate world, they fish eat the little fish all the time, and names change, and subsidiaries are established, and so on. But anyways, back then, 
I don't have the dates. I don't have the paperwork in front of me. But we we had meetings here in English Bay, and there were people from Lagos that showed up too. At some point, uh, the first company that came offered six million dollars, six million dollars for uh, exploration on English Bay, and we denied them. Three companies scheduled themselves simultaneously three days in a row. But, so the first company that put their proposal to us, we told them, uh, take your $6 million and put it where the sun don't shine, because we want our lands and our waters left intact. So the next day, another oil company, and uh, first, let me tell you, this went through all of the channels in the elected system. Uh, because of our resistance, they allowed us to have meetings about it. So the second day, uh, the company proposed, they added a zero and put $60 million on the table to go uh, after this resource under English Bay. Uh, once again, we unanimously rejected the, the offer of $60 million. Uh, and, you know, word was getting around, hey, this is a pretty heated meeting, man. These guys are, are serious. You know, they're not even looking at $60 million. So the third day never happened. But there was rumor that another zero was added. I don't doubt it. That's how the corporate, the corporate world works. So they, there was, it never happened, and they refused to meet. But they were saying that it was up to $600 million. So it was rejected on the local level 100%. Meanwhile, uh, finances were were needed because your your foot wasn't in the, in the door in the corporate world by, uh, you know, print gold and everything else. So they, they let it rest for a few years. And then, of course, they came to chief and council, whoever was in there at that time, and more proposals were brought. Uh, subsequently, uh, the chief and council that was in at that time uh, needed uh, pre-disturbance assessments and, uh, you know, the protocol of resource extraction. Meanwhile, that, that, that had to be done, so they used our own people to do uh, pre-disturbance assessments and traditional use studies. They were using TK people, they were using elders, but they needed some elders' signatures on these documents in order for it to go ahead. So what they did is they took three of the adjacent elders that lived right on the site, and uh, somehow they they got their signatures. And it's, it's a well-known fact that disturbance payments are paid if you live within the proximity of an oil and gas facility. It's not much. It's uh, 3500 3, for a single pad. <laughs> annually, 4,500 for multi-pass annually. But in order for the oil companies to get their foot in, 
that chief and council have to have to jump through the hoops like anybody else, you know, to pass the race. So if they they managed to get three elders and they they started drilling, even though the unanimous members in the community. So uh, this past winter, a group together and their supporters blocked their road the south entrance of 149B. That happened like six, eight months ago. And uh, they put which is like, which changes the box. If you have a structure, and I think uh, spiritual involvement was there where they put up traditional uh, sweat lodge and stuff like that on the access. It wasn't covered by media, of course. Uh, it was uh, suppressed, the news suppressed. It didn't really get out there. But it, but it worked, because now they have rerouted their access to another locale, uh, which happens to go by four homes here, and one of the councillors sits at the end of that road, who is a board member of, of, of Red, who is a partner with Frontier. And we all band is broke. They can't uh, build a, even a little tiny home for the home. It'll probably cost two or three thousand dollars. That there's homeless people, <coughs> there's homeless people all over. So we know that it's financed the most. They went ahead and uh, they up. Tri Res has split up in other corporate, and they just formed and bought a road building company. So that's where we are presently, and they are. There's heavy traffic going by everybody's houses, and the grandmothers in the adjacent homes here, you can hear the machines, you'll definitely hear all of the, the development, but are resisting once again because they were denied this winter by another set of grandmothers. So we're at the point right now where internally we're, uh, we're uh, educating and sharing whatever information we can. Um, a sign stating no development on stolen land and English Bay grandmothers say no was erected on the access road on the elders part of her, her land here. Mm -hmm. And that was, um, that was, that was destroyed or taken away. Just a sign bothered somebody. They're at the point right now where internally and externally, with mind you, a lot of support. Uh, Nigel, you, the, the extent of that network of that three-day uh, gathering here at English Bay. This past week in Cold Lake, there was a Indigenous Climate Action Camp um, put on by the group Indigenous Climate Action, and the camp was called Grassroots Grow Deep. And um, some of the, uh, I, I had attended this, and at the time, I think uh, it really inspired some of the members of Cold Lake. And um, I think that's why, one of the reasons why there's renewed interest in um, really going out and fighting this. It was very encouraging for a lot of our younger and older people. It wasn't 
uh, it was very educational, and yes, it did. The young people that came from other nations and other uh, wherever they came from, and there was quite a variety of them, inspired a lot of the local people for sure. Can you guys tell us a little bit about what would what this project would uh, potentially do? First of all. First of all, it's the last little square couple of miles of pristine, uh, pristine, you know, the fauna is still intact. There's a creek running through there. That's where all the moose are, all the deer, and uh, the subsistence that the people use. English Bay is kind of like a refuge for animals because of the proximity of being totally surrounded by military and or uh, oil and gas extraction. We're totally surrounded here. This is the only undeveloped place. And yeah, it's four miles by four miles, and what they're looking at is uh, a third of it with uh, 10 new uh, oil pads. But what it, that's what it is, is we're protecting the last little piece of land that we have where people can snare rabbits if they want. And a lot of the elders express that they get moose from these uh, from the, from this little area we're talking about. So it's it's both culturally and spiritually, and and it's it's very important because that's it. A lot of us grew up here, and uh, there was only wagon roads and stuff back there. There was uh, so it, it, it's very significant to the continuing of the culture and the traditional aspect of using our land in Asusana people. Mm-hmm. You know, and we know that if there is ever uh, profit or, you know, the corporate world would swallow it up and uh, individually people would see nothing. That's been the case for the last 18 years since... Uh, since, since the primitive land claim and all of that illusion that was created of shareholders and, you know, we never ever see anything tangible in our hands. I, I spoke about resources that we won't get, but that's not what we're after. We're not looking for a monetary settlement where uh, we'll all get some money and we'll happily go home. No, this is, this is not about that. This is about keeping the land intact at any cost. We're not after money, even though we desperately need housing, we desperately need uh, our roads fixed, which is part of the sugar that they put in the cup of tea, is they're fixing everybody's driveways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just, it's, so that's the position of the grandmas. It's not, they don't want a big check and they're all happy. It's about keeping the land intact. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so um, the signs were erected and they were quickly taken down. Um, can you tell us, uh, well, at this point it's the early stages, but what are the next steps for this group? Uh, Internal, in- we're internally edu- educating so that we could have more moccasins on the ground from all levels of our community. You know, and uh, we're networking with the exterior for, for exposure and support. Okay, right on. Well, um, at this point, you know, I, uh, I, I fully support your guys' action, and I really hope to see that uh, it has some success. Um, you know, if there's anything else that you wanted to mention yeah, about... Yeah, I'll, I'll just uh, close off here yeah. by saying uh, to the audience who's listening to this, 
that they should keep themselves well aware of the goings-ons in Coal Lake because we know of media suppression. You know, we know the corporations own the, the mainstream media outlets, and, you know, they usually slant it in favor of uh, industry if they do come out. But it's, it's venues through uh, you, Nigel, you know, and other folks that we have that have access to radio and access to different media outlets. But the audience should know to keep their eyes on full weight and uh, keep, like, we need this, all the support we can. We're doing this in a respectful, peaceful way. We're not in any aggressive posture whatsoever. And we, what we are doing, we are in a de- defensive posture. We're defending our birthright to our land. And mm-hmm. we're not infringing or disrespecting anybody's, uh, you know, the, 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 the construction workers and the people that are working on this may feel that the movements that the grandmothers have created might infringe their jobs. We're not after the workers. We're not after the people that are trying to make a living. Because those are our own people on that heavy equipment out there building these roads. Mm-hmm. So that the focus has to be that we're not, that's not who we're after. We're, we're going higher up the chain of command yeah, to the policy makers and to the decision makers on the higher level. We know this is financed by international, by international, uh, Money. We know that uh, uh, tech tech frontier is the biggest uh, oil and gas uh, the, the biggest oil extraction uh, company that ever was in Fort McMurray. It supersedes Syncrude uh, and Suncor. It's huge. We're 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 up against international investment because Coal Lake is broke. How could they spend twenty two million dollars? That's what they spent so far. On uh, up to since they started this, uh, they allowed them to put four wells or something like that. But the cost is about $22 million, and that's from reliable sources that that went into hearing against Petro and Pi Red this past couple of months. One of the members, one of the original uh, members that stopped them on the south end. So that's uh, that's the message I'd like the audience to hear is that. Uh, we do need all the support we can get, but we want to make it clear that uh, this is a gentle grandmother position that's uh, forwarding the agenda. We'll definitely be keeping up with the group, and you know we wish you all the best here on a Chimwin with uh, with this action against uh, corporation. Okay, Masi Chuck, no pipeline. Masi no Chuck. Oh. <laughs> right on. All right, we'll speak with you guys again. Have a good day. Bye bye. Thank you. That was Nigel Henry Robinson, host of CJSR show Achimowin, speaking with the English Bay Grandmothers about opposing development on the Cold Lake First Nations. You can listen to Achimowin on CJSR 88.5 FM on Friday mornings at 9 a.m. You're listening to Terra Informa, 
Broadcasting from CGSR 88.5 Studios on Treaty 6 territory in Edmonton. This past week in Edmonton has seemed somewhat post-apocalyptic due to the influx of smoke from British Columbia's wildfires blowing over Alberta. I know that I've been feeling uneasy from the lack of clear skies, especially when even the sun has been difficult to spot. If you do spot it, it's a massive red glowing (laughs) circle. It's like Mordor. I woke up to such yellow skies yesterday morning, it looked like a sulfur bomb had exploded. <laughs> I was very disturbed. So, for our second story, we dug up an archive about a different kind of pollution that blocks out our view of the stars. Former Terra Informer Catherine Lennon wanted to know how industry and municipalities are tackling the problem of light pollution. In a piece she wrote and recorded back in 2012, she spoke with Alan Luck, energy engineer at Shell's Scottford Upgrader in Alberta. Catherine also spoke with Sherilyn Jaring, Director of Light Efficient Communities and the Beaver Hills Dark Sky Preserve Coordinator for the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada. If you come into Edmonton by plane or train or car, you'll notice our city from a distance. It glitters gold and it spills sprawl into the night. Just northeast of Edmonton, the Alberta Industrial Heartland is home to over 40 companies. Our city is ringed by refineries. I started this story with a question about how and why these refineries need to remain lit up at night. I started by calling up Alan Luck, the energy engineer for the Shell Scottford Upgrader, located 40 kilometers northeast of Edmonton in Strathcona County. I asked him why the refineries need to remain lit up all night. Yeah, that's actually a real good question, and it's uh, the answer is the answer is fairly simple. The the um, the industries in that area, uh, and more specifically ours, I guess I can speak to ours. Our uh, our plant runs runs twenty four seven, and uh, with that twenty four seven operation, we've got uh, field operators, and we've got uh, we've got staff that are involved. On a uh, on a round-the-clock basis, monitoring the equipment and checking the equipment and operating the equipment. And in order to do that, you need to be able to see all the equipment. It's really a safety, a need for safety, that all the equipment has to be lit up. And because the the facilities are large and they're usually uh, multi stories high, that light is is visible from uh, from quite a distance. Well, I'm Sherry Lynn Jerig. I'm the director for Light Efficient Communities. I'm the Dark Sky Preserve Coordinator for the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada. I'm staff at the TELUS World of Science Observatory. We'd be all nicely dark adapted. We had galaxies, you know, spinning around in our brains and numbers and magnitudes and all of this stuff, our observations, or maybe we were looking for a faint asteroid occultation or something cool. Then I began to notice when we astronomers went out to our dark site, it was becoming increasingly difficult to view the stars because of the growing dome of uh, glare from the city of Edmonton and Fort Saskatchewan. According to Strathcona County's Dark Sky and Energy Efficient Lighting Community Handbook, light pollution is the excessive or obtrusive use of lighting that compromises visibility or has a negative impact on the environment. Light pollution increases ambient light levels and results in sky glow. 
This blurry orange glare is most noticeable in populated areas, but can also be seen in rural areas. My goal was, you know, and I didn't really think it would be, it would take 10, 15, 20 years to achieve this when I started out. But my goal was to just get the uh, city of Edmonton and, and other municipalities to get smart lighting that only faced downwards and was properly shielded and thus reduce the light spill onto the sky so that we could enjoy uh, showing our children the constellations and explaining how the sky moved and understanding it ourselves, you know, as general public and also see more Northern Lights displays. According to Strathcona County's Dark Sky and Energy Efficient Lighting Community Handbook, Dark Sky and Energy Efficient Lighting improves visibility and conserves the nighttime environment by reducing ambient light levels, energy costs, and power consumption, carbon footprint and greenhouse gas emissions, as well as negative impacts to the health of people and wildlife. The municipalities are quick to recognize that they first have to do something about their own backyard, their government facilities and buildings. So that is where they start. For instance, the county of Strathcona, including Sherwood Park, they have a light-efficient community policy. They were the first light-efficient com community well, in the world, and they call theirs dark sky and light efficient community policy. So that has many levels, and the implementation process uh, takes some time. They have their priorities. But interestingly, uh, you were talking about urban sprawl, and uh, we've been approached by land developers in the last, uh, I guess, about a year and a half who are putting in new uh, communities and want to do a lighting design, which is a wonderful thing because, you know, when you think of what artists can do with lights, mm -hmm. then you get all kinds of ideas about what a community could actually look like and function like if you had uh, beautiful lighting that was energy efficient and was on timers and dimmers and even used for uh, for recreational uh, purposes such as lights that come on on a cycling path uh, you could have uh, bollards that just lit up the sidewalk and they were uh, motion sensitive so that they go on you know a while before you actually get to the light and then go off a little while later. So you're saving money, but you have this kind of cool, thoughtful uh, design element incorporated into the development right from the beginning. So it has to be well thought out and planned, and definitely lighting can be used as a phenomenal tool for our future. I think my hope for the future of it is that everyone gets their act together and actually changes the lights. And right along with that, my hope is that, you know, there's, uh, for some sleepless little child, uh, you know, some night they can walk over to their window, look out their window, and instead of seeing a glaring street light, they'll see the moon with some stars around in the sky. Or they might see the northern lights. So.
That was Catherine Lennon and her piece from 2012, where she spoke with Alan Luck and Sherilyn Jaring about light pollution and how it's being tackled by Alberta municipalities. If you want to hear more stories like the ones this week, check out our website at terrainforma.ca for past episodes. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton, produced with respect on Treaty 6 territory. If you have any questions or comments, you can send us an email to terra at cjsr.com or tweet it at Terra Informa. Thanks this week to our contributors, Shelley Jodouin and Amanda Wu. We've been your hosts, Dylan Hall and Hannah Cunningham. Catch you next week.